Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Please be seated. And I hope we reflect on the fact that people in past generations would have stood in this house of God and would have worshipped, used that paraphrase, and also would have sung unaccompanied when the church was built at first. And using that presenter's desk, the presenter would have led the congregational singing. And it's good sometimes to reflect on that, because that bigger picture of God's people, that's very much the story of the Advent season, not just the story of our fellowship, our congregation over these last 155 years or whatever number it is now, um, but also the story of God's people down through the generations. And it's good for us to remember that, particularly in a week when, well, we're going to have an election. I was listening to the radio this morning, and the, 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 the latest um, from that fellow Miller, you know, the John, is it John Miller you call him? The, the statistician from Glasgow University, is that we're heading for another hung parliament. I thought I'd cheer you up this morning. <laughs> uh, and, and, and in the midst of all the confusion and the and also, I think the, probably the lack of interest. It was noticeable on Wednesday evening that the turnout for the, the hustings was considerably less than we've had before. Usually, this downstairs has been well filled, well over 100 people. There was 50 here on um, Wednesday night. I don't take that personally at all. I think just the fact that it's Christmas, it's dark, it's miserable, and folk are a bit switched off um, or are decided how they're going to vote um, had a lot to do with the fact that people just are not very engaged. And yet, our political leaders tell us that this election is probably one of the most important for a generation. And I would, with respect, suggest that it probably is. Because the outcome, one way or the other, will have a major impact on the future of our country, not only the United Kingdom, but also on our own land. And so, as I said last Sunday, I say again to you as a Christian minister, I would encourage you all to exercise your democratic right and to encourage others to do so. But we gather as the people of God, conscious that there is one who rules and reigns. The Advent season story is the one who rules and reigns. And we're conscious of that because actually when you look at it, so many of the promises tonight at the service of nine lessons and carols, not all of this passage will be read, um, but these verses will be read from Micah chapter 5, one of the nine lessons that are read at this traditional service. But you, Bethlehem Epaphra, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And that passage tonight will be read. In fact, it might even be one of our readings. I'm not very sure one of the ones we've been given. But, but nonetheless, it'll be read. And yet, so often, we lose sight of the fact that there's a context in which this passage is given. And in fact, when you think about it, all these great promises to do with the coming of Christ, to do with His second coming, to do with God's activity in the world, practically all of them are set in the midst of turbulent and troubled times. The context of this prophecy 
given in the book of Micah is that the prophet Micah was exercising a ministry probably roughly the same time as Isaiah was. Although Micah's ministry wasn't just within the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, the southern part of what had been the kingdom of Israel that had divided and had split into two parts, but also amongst the northern part, what claimed to be Israel, what was often known as, as Samaria, that northern part. And Micah's ministry alongside Isaiah, alongside other of the minor prophets, was to bring God's word of judgment, God's word of warning, and yet also God's word of promise. And actually, those three things, a word of judgment, a word of warning rather, and a word of judgment, and a word of promise, those three things are all connected together in God's prophetic ministry. And actually, if you're testing prophecy today, however we understand that, we always have to understand that God's prophetic word is a word of warning, a word of judgment, and also a word of promise. And fortunately, in the church, we all want to hear nice promises. We all want to hear a word from the Lord that's going to say, well, everything's going to be great or better or whatever, but we don't really want to listen to a word of warning or indeed a word of judgment or a warning of judgment. And yet, in prophecy, that is what happened. And Micah has that task, along with others, of warning Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, of coming judgment. But also, he brings a word of promise. And actually, as we read this passage, it's in the old analogy that I've used many a time, but I'll remind you again, just in case you've forgotten, of when you come over the hill, driving down to the, the fourth valley into Stirling, and you look up, and you see the, the hills, the local hills you call them behind Stirling, but behind that, you start seeing the Grampian Mountains and the higher peaks of the Grand, and you see them, and they're all kind of like stacked up behind each other. And, and, for, and that time, as you just kind of go over the hill, coming down to fourth valley. It looks as if they're all just kind of near each other, but actually there's big gaps in between. Well, in a sense, that's a good picture of prophecy. And in passages like this, we have that. We have the immediate events of what's happening in Israel and Judah. And the Syrians are mentioned. That was the power before Babylon. Nimrod is Babylon. Assyria was the rising power around the area of Syria, Damascus, we understand it today. And they were going to invade and they were going to occupy the northern kingdom of Israel. So there's a word of prophecy about that. There's also a very obvious word of prophecy. Well, let's be honest. I mean, when it says, you know, Israel will be, you know, when a sense will be kept barren in a sense until the time comes when she who is in labor bears a son. Well, obviously, there's a prophecy there about one who is to come, the birth of Jesus, you Bethlehem Epaphra. But there's also words that speak about the future. We'll come to them in a short time when it talks about the, in that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses. And it goes on to speak about all of that. And there's all the bits of time in between. And so, passage like this, important to have that kind of, we almost could do with spiritual 3D glasses in order to give us an understanding of the depth. But then again, God's Word comes to people in a time of crisis and calamity, and God's Word comes with a depth, with an insight, with an understanding. It's not superficial. You know, it doesn't make promises but perhaps some might make in public life. Buy now and pay later. And, 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 and with very little long-term thinking, God's Word has that length and depth to it. And so it's important to understand 
the setting. And the setting is at the very beginning, and again, this is never read. I don't think so anyway. In any lessons on carols, it says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. What's happening is that things are getting worse. That there's forces building up. And the people of God are going to be literally besieged. And there's going to be a disaster. The city is going to fall. And Israel's ruler is going to face the consequences. And again, that happened in real life, in real history, with Israel, the northern kingdom, and then eventually with Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. But it also is a picture of God's people down through the ages. The people of God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Jewish people in that land of promise, surrounded by the nations round about, that hated them being there and wanted to destroy them. It was the situation at the time when Jesus was born. Um, Judah or Israel had a king, King Herod, but he was a puppet king under the rule and control of the Romans. Last year, I think it was, we, was it last year? Was it Easter time? We watched um, a video film, a very good film, setting the scene. For, no, it was last year, it was a Christmas time. Setting the scene for Christmas and the birth of Jesus and actually very well presented to us just the, the power politics and the, and the things that were going on behind the scenes and how Herod, might think he was the bees and ease and, and pretended to be and had the palace and got the temple built and all the rest of it with that. But those trappings of power were only an outward sign of his actual fatal weakness, hence the reason why he was so frightened when the wise men came and told him that there was a king being born amongst the people. His position was precarious as it was. And that's a good reminder to us today. It's a good reminder to our political leaders who might like to think that they've got all power and authority, that actually it's a passing and fragile thing. That the rulers of this world and the great powers of this world think that they're the B's and E's and may appear, as some of them did this week at the NATO conference, as if they're the Lord of this world, but they're here today and gone tomorrow. It's also a reminder of the fact that there is a spiritual reality. There is a conflict going on in this world and has gone on between the power of God and His kingdom and His purposes and the power of the evil one and the evil forces raid against them. There's also a picture of the church. I spent time on Friday lunch with, um, with James, who works for Release International. We've had him here before, and he's going to be coming back later on next year, making arrangements for March already and of the spiritual and practical besieging of the people of God in our world today, where martyrdom and persecution in various forms is all too evident and all too real, and particularly where the church actually often, ironically, is growing. And so even this verse sets the scene for the global picture of spiritual reality of the pomp of power that so easily passes, of the frailty of our rulers, and of the march of time. And it's into that context that the promise is given. But you, Bethlehem Epaphra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. 
Now, again, for most of us, all of us sitting here this morning, we'll be well aware, of course, that Beth- Bethlehem was a bit of a, 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 a one-horse town. If it had been in the Wild West, it would literally have been probably a bit of a one-horse town. Its claim to fame was it was where Rachel was buried. Isaac's wife, Rachel, was buried. That's its claim to fame. But actually, it didn't have much fame. It's not even mentioned. And when the land is divided and the settlements are mentioned in the book of um, Judges as to, as to what's, how the land is to be split up, Bethlehem's not even mentioned as one of the key towns, you know. It's just a bit like, you know, canvas lying in a wet day. I can say that because I came from there. Just a bit of an unentity. And yet here again, there are principles that are important for us to remember. If God's word of prophecy is a word of warning and of judgment and of promise, if God's word comes to people in the midst of calamitous times, if it's to remind us of what God does, yes, in the immediate, but also in the bigger story of the events, not just of our life, but of our world, it's also a story of how God likes to take that which is nothing and make something of it. And of course, its claim to fame is that it was the home of David and David's family. And even there, King David was an entity in a sense, the youngest of a family. Remember the story of Samuel going to find a king for Israel? And surely, Lord, you don't ask me to come to this lot of people in this place. And even if you do, well, surely it's that big, tall, strapping fellow, not that one young wee lad that's been sent out to kind of look after the sheep, you know? And the God who looks not on the outward appearance, but upon the heart. The God who delights to take somebody who is a nobody and make them a powerful and mighty servant of the Lord. This is the God of the Advent season. And although they are small among the clans of Judah, out of that little place will come for me one who will be ruled over Israel, fulfilling the promise that we mentioned again last Sunday, the promise given to King David that his throne would endure forever. What does that promise mean? It didn't mean much in history. David's throne after Solomon fell apart. The remnant of David's family was left with the little country of Judah. The rest of the rebels took over most of the country. And when that all fell apart, David's king never reappeared in earthly history. And yet God keeps his promises, as Karen so ably and helpfully is reminding us as we we hear from the young people Sunday by Sunday, God is faithful to his word. But as Peter tells us, his keeping of his promises is not as how we understand keeping our promises. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promises, but he have his own time and purpose for when they are fulfilled. This is the God of the Advent season. And out of that little place, one starry night, there was born the one who will be ruler over Israel. And to help us even to remember that, and I'm going to suggest that when you go home, open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, and that long list of names, of unpronounceable names, Um, of people who were the descendants of Jesus, or Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 3. And again, that similar long list of names of the descendants of Jesus. And just look at how God through the generations kept a people for himself. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Adam and Eve. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has kept his promises in a lot of non-entities. 
prostitute, a widow, a cripple, an unpronounceable name, but all part of God keeping his promises. Let's think together. A carol that reminds us of that. 503. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see you lie above your deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. This son that is to be born. Who is this one who is to be born? Well, it tells us that Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. Even in that, that's an indicator. I'm, I'm just trying to pick up these things to help you to see just what Karen was doing with the young folk and all of us. You know, God keeps his promises. He has his timing. Israel went through that period of 400 years from the prophet Micah, um, Malachi rather, to the coming of Jesus when there was silence. People like John the Baptist's father, they still went through the rituals of religion. But when, when the angel came to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, well, nobody believed it because, well, let's be honest, God hadn't spoken for 400 years. There was silence until the time when she who was in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. This idea of God's restoration, of drawing his people to himself. And of course, that shouldn't surprise us when it talks about the son. Remember, in this time, you can turn to the New Testament if you want to turn to Mark's, Mark's gospel, for instance. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in Mark chapter 1, And at that time, verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. That public acclamation with the voice of God from heaven that this was and is his son. And again, in Mark chapter 9, and the story of the transfiguration, and in verse 2 of chapter 9, we read, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus again. That idea, that line of the prophets and seen in Elijah, that line of the law seen in Moses, both standing in a sense, accrediting the fact that this one who was in their midst was the fulfillment of what the prophets and the law spoke about. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And it's vital as we enter through this Christmas season. You see, people are quite happy to have baby Jesus, perhaps. They're quite happy to see the crib scene in, 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 in the Cathedral Square or George Square in Glasgow, or even in a car, perhaps. They might accept that if they get it from one of the religious friends. But the reality is that the son that the prophet Micah is speaking about who's born is the one who will be a ruler, the one who is God. 
And we need to affirm that clearly in what we say and what we do over this festive and Advent season, that what we're worshiping isn't a baby as such. We're honoring the Son of God, the one whom the Father has accredited as His Son and shown His pleasure with His Son, not only from the voice from heaven, but as Paul tells us in Ephesians, by the Spirit bringing Him again from the dead and now exalting Him to the right hand of the Father. This is the Son, the Son of God. And it's not just Peter who, in a sense, didn't know what to say because they're so frightened in truth. As we gaze with wonder at the manger scene, we should be like the shepherds and the wise men who bow down and give God glory that His Word has spoken and His promise has been fulfilled and His Son has come. And look what He also says about the Son. He will stand, verse 4, and back to Micah, sorry, back to Micah. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Well, we're fairly booking about, that's why I don't do many in the first wee section. But in this section, turn to the book of Ezekiel. So it's just before Micah, wind your way back. And it's a lot bigger than Micah, so you'll come across it. Ezekiel. One of my friends was saying he was doing a series of sermons from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. I thought, oh my goodness. Yes. Don't worry, if I ever did, I wouldn't be, a, wouldn't be a verse by verse, chapter by chapter exposition. Um, um, all scripture is from God, but not necessarily, at least for some poor soul like me, is up to going through it verse by verse or chapter by chapter. But here's Ezekiel chapter 34. And here's the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds of darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them in the mountains of Israel and the ravines and all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land, and they will feed in rich pasture in the mountains of Israel. 
I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And as you read that, and I'm not going to ask you to jump very quickly, but if you can, if you want to, to John chapter 10, what does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. And you see again the fulfillment of God's word and God's promises. And I will give myself for my flock. Here is a God who's passionate for people. Here's a God who cares for his flock. And obviously here we're not talking about the sheep and the moors. We're using it as, as a picture language. That's why David, in all his strengths, but also in his great weaknesses, could still testify to the fact that the Lord was his shepherd. Because he knew of God's care for him in the times of blessing, but also in the deep ravines, in the green pastures, but also in the deep valleys. Here's a God who takes upon himself the care for his people. And how does he do that? By sending his son who will be a shepherd, who will guard over his flock. In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And his people will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. There is that place of security in the midst of the turbulence of our world, of our society, of the confusion, of the ebb and flow of history, and the ebb and flow of our human life. There is one who can bring us into green pastures and restore our souls, and it's the shepherd God. No wonder the shepherds were the ones who heard the call from the angels on that first Christmas. Glory to God in the highest. For it's the shepherd God who will stand and care for his flock. This is the one who is to be born. And notice how it says he will reach to the ends of the earth. And already in our opening psalm, in the passage from Ezekiel, in, in this story, we have that global picture God's got that big picture of the world. In fact, actually, of the whole universe, the whole of creation. And that challenges, as I said last Sunday, our Western mindset, which is often foisted upon us and fed by, yes, our political rulers and by, yes, our education system and everything else. Let's just have a broad sweep and condemn everybody. It's fed by a contemporary society that I'm the king of the castle. We are not. And we are not the only people that God is concerned for either. To the ends of the earth is his passion. And look how he goes on to talk about that. And yes, there is that bit about Assyria and Babylon and, and everything else. And, you know, and you know, what does that mean in terms of what was happening in immediate history? What does that mean in the future? Although it's interesting, it says in verse 5, another little phrase which should remind us, he will be our peace. Now, here's a question for you. I'm a bit naughty this morning. What book in the Bible that I often refer to, one of Paul's letters where Jesus has spoken about the peace? What, what's, what's the letter? The letter to the what? I'm retiring. <laughs> to the Ephesians. To the Ephesians. Jesus Christ, Paul says in Ephesians, is our peace maker. But in Isaiah 9, he'll be called Prince of Peace. See again? And the peace, the shalom that's talking about here and elsewhere in the Bible is not the absence of conflict, it's the state of being secure because we're right with 
God and therefore able to be right with others. How that we, our society needs to see that. How our society needs to see that. But reading on verse 7, the remnant of Jacob in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. This idea of seed being scattered, and that certainly was true for Israel, the people, the Jewish people scattered throughout the world. And that purpose of God, which is drawn indeed in more recent times, has drawn people back to the land of Israel. No doubt that is part of the purpose of God too, bringing the Jewish people, many of the Jewish people, back to the land of Israel. I've told you before, we have our dining room table that was bought 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, from we lived in the south side of Glasgow. You see, it was quite posh, and there's all these Jewish folk and mutant merns and all the rest of it, and we went up there from a little two-room flat in Thornley Bank to get our dining room table for our new manse in Mount Vernon, and it was a Jewish family. What were they doing? They are having a last special meal before. Where did they go? They would go to Israel. They weren't brought in Israel. They weren't brought up there, but they were returning to their land. And God's purposes are no doubt being worked out through the return to the land and the whole story of Israel today. And people debate, what does that mean? But it also means that throughout the world, God's people, His people, people of God today, are scattered among the nations in the midst of many peoples. And they don't wait for anyone or depend on man because their trust is in the God who keeps his promises. That global picture of that number which is, you'll be fed up me repeating the same things all the time, but I'm trying to do that in order to begin to see the connections, that number that is without, number made up of every tribe and language grouping and people and nation, that big picture. And then he goes on, time's moving on. The remnant of Jacob among the nations, the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest. Well, one last flick back, Genesis chapter 49. And these are the promises given by Jacob to his family. Remember, Abraham called to journey. The promise given to Abraham, the covenant given to Abraham, that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. The whole story around that, the birth of Isaac, his son, the promise being fulfilled in him. And then Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob and Esau, and the whole story about that. And Jacob, this wild man, this strong character who is broken by God through a whole series of events in his life, including seeing the ladder up to heaven and everything else. And now Jacob, as an old man, many ways broken and restored by God's grace, leans on his staff and gathers his people round about him and blesses each member of his family. And there's a whole story in all of that. We're just going to read the one in verse 8. The one in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be in the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine. Even as we're reading that, that should start ringing wee bells in our head and mind. His coat to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grace. 
grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine. His teeth whiter than milk. Do some of those things ring a bell? Yes, praise God that they do. And look at that. I'll read this to you in the book of Revelation. And they see this vision. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls in Revelation 5? But no one in heaven and earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said, do not weep. See, what does he say? See the line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. See, I mean, I don't know anybody else. It's amazing. God keeps his promises. God has his people. God will bring about his purposes. And it's a global concern for this world. And the line of the tribe of Judah will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that final warning as we close is a warning. Look what, I find Micah myself. <laughs> it's a warning. Look what happens at the very end of that chapter, chapter 5. In that day declares the Lord, and again we spoke last Sunday of the day of the Lord, and that specific time. In that day declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you'll no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root from among you your Asherah poles, like totem poles. When I demolish your cities, I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Now that became true and immediately history in Israel and Judah. That became true when the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the Romans pillaged it. That will also become true when God on that day will come in glory. And as I said last Sunday, there may not be many horses or chariots or totem poles in our land, but there's plenty of things that people bow down and worship. There's plenty of symbols of crass materialism, why so many in a world hardly have even enough food on their plate. It's interesting enough, the only other passage in Micah that people are familiar with are these verses in Micah 6. I'll read them to you. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the God who sees our world and all its need and whose anger is stirred against all that is wrong. And here is the God who will at the last destroy all that is evil and against his purposes. So don't get too comfy in the things of this world for they'll be consigned to the dustbin of history. But take comfort in the God who this Advent season always keeps his promises. Let's sing together. Thousand and eight. Let's stand. We've been sitting long enough. Let's stand. The Lord's my shepherd. I'll not want. He makes me lie in pastures green. He leads me by the still, still waters. His goodness restores.
Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.